Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is professor and writer Louise Nair. She's author of Poised for Retirement, Moving from Anxiety to Zen. What is the right time to retire? What do you need in place to be ready? Award-winning author Louise Nair offers inspirational insight to baby boomers and the 250,000 Americans who turn 65 every month. Poised for Retirement, her new book, is not your parents' retirement guide, nor is it a financial planning guide. It's the relatable story of an ordinary working woman reflecting on her own life and career. And that's Louise. She's featured in the San Francisco Chronicle and the Huffington Post. And her previous book, Burned, was an Oprah magazine great read. That, welcome to the show. Nice to have you here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, great. I like your book, Louise. It's fun. It's, you know, it's fun reading. It's, it's, it really is. It, it goes by very quickly. It's, it's a great read. And you really, obviously, it isn't the retirement book. It isn't that typical kind of telling you what, how much money you should have, um, although you view that, obviously, as something that people worry about when they retire. So you get into all the worries and the anxieties and all the stuff that uh, people who, what, and they're usually late 50s, early 60s, start thinking about when they think about retirement. Um, and it's your story. So, yeah. 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 It, Why? It, well, it, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. As well no, it's, as. It's as well as the story of other people I interviewed, um, about 17 to 20 people I interviewed as well to add to my story. And those 17 people, all of them come from different backgrounds. I mean, I think sometimes traditionally you think about, well, retirement, really, I have to worry about how much money I'm going to have. Uh, you know, is it going to be enough? Am I going to live too long? And then I won't, I'll run out of money. But of all these people, they come from different walks of life, different kinds of jobs, uh, and make entirely different kinds of salaries. Some people really have a lot of money when they retire, others not so much, but there's some common themes. Like, what are they? Well, what I did was I started keeping a journal before I retired because lots of anxieties came up, and I thought, you know, as a writer, it was a good way to help me cope. And then um, some of the anxieties that came up were right in the beginning was making the decision. I was getting out a little bit early, um, mainly because my neck was hurting from grading so many papers for all you English teachers out there. And then I really did want to write. So I did have something that I wanted to go to. But what I found was that almost all the people I, I interviewed said at a certain point in their jobs, they hit a wall, and they knew they needed to leave. Uh, Some of it was just pure physical, mental exhaustion. But then, you know, as I was starting to think, well, should I do this? And some of the humorous parts is, you know, I heard the voice of my Depression-era mother saying, you know, bread might cost $5 in 10 years. What are you doing? Um, But then some of the other feelings that came up were, um, am I going to be lonely when I retire? Am I going to miss all the people that I see every day? And, and for a lot of us, we don't, 
we don't we take for granted those little chats that we have every day with people who we may not see after we retire. And then the other thing was, what, what's it going to feel like not to be a professor, uh, having my students around me? Um, and then the other fears that came up at the end, which came up for me and my husband and some other people, um, the fear was, am I going to make it? You know, am I going to get sick? And I had all these um, tests toward the last month before I retired because I thought, you know, I thought something was wrong with my heart or uh, stomach. And I was very fortunate that I was okay, but I knew I had to get out. And my husband also, his blood pressure went up two years before he retired. He had a very difficult boss. And so I think as we get older, maybe tired of our jobs, and that's not true for everybody, but as we do get there, we start having physical symptoms. And well, you only have one that? body. I'm going to stop you here because I want to, like the messages, okay, you're talking about there are for yourself and for other people that you interviewed. Part of this stuff when you start getting to be at a certain age, as you said, you st- you get kind of physical, physically tired, uh, whatever your job may be. But there's that emotional, I think that's important too. You kind of get burned out. I think you interviewed a, a nurse and, and, and maybe a, somebody who was a physician, people who at some point who are in a caring profession begin not to care anymore like you you really do after 30 years or whatever it is I really don't I'm not really with it I really don't care about my patients the way I should or I don't care yeah and yeah there was yes called what some people would call compassion fatigue and I know my husband felt it he worked with um, developmentally disabled seniors and independent seniors and They had always, some of them had been to our house and part of our lives, and suddenly he didn't like what he was feeling because he just physically and emotionally felt burned out. And and you're right, the book really is about more emotional planning. Uh, rather than financial planning. So, okay, how, let's talk about you, some of the specifics of the emotional planning because each person is different in terms of emotionally how they react. I know some people, for instance, and I know a lot of people that way. Maybe I'd be this way. I uh, is you know some people need more adulation than others. They need to be right. need to know that people respect them and think they're doing a great job. And the thought of retiring and you're not going to have these people around you telling you how great you are is an issue. Right. Right. (laughs) It's very true. And, 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 you know, one of the things is to know yourself. And so if you, if you are that type of person, it's important before you leave your job or soon after to find places where you will get some adulation. It can be the right kind of volunteer place. Um, some people I reti- who, reti- who I interviewed ended up going back to their place of work, if they could, maybe one day a week to keep that going. For me, I knew I couldn't keep up the teaching like I was doing, but now um, I'm doing some part-time teaching, doing memoir workshops, which I totally love, and I don't have to take papers home. Um, And the other thing with losing your identity, you know, as you get older, some of those things become less important. And 
David Brooks has an article called The Moral Bucket List where he talks about toward the end of your life, and and by the way, a lot of people are going to have 20 or 30 years after retirement, Um, but towards that end part of your life, it's more um, the eulogy that you're thinking of. How are you going to be remembered as a kind person, as a good person, rather than the resume, you know, all the things you've accomplished? And so there's, I believe, a shift. Uh, uh, You can call it a spiritual shift where some of that adulation maybe is not quite as important as tutoring a child in the local elementary school and feeling good about that. Do you think there are more, more opportunities today? I mean, I, my, I can answer the question. Uh, I'll answer the question first. I think there are. Um, and I think, obviously, you can, in your book, the people who that you interviewed have found some of those. Uh, there are more choices for people who... Uh, retire, uh, you know, whether you retire, whether you live another 5, 10, 20 years, whatever it is, but there are so many opportunities for taking those skills like you've been describing at work if you're a teacher and putting them into another setting but using the same skills and being exactly yeah, passionate about And then sometimes it's trying new things too. So, uh, you know, one of the things is that we often have talents or things that we love to do and they're just often stuffed in boxes in the basement. You know, it could be old piano music. It could be carpentry tools. And retirement can give us the opportunity to take some of those things up again and not have to be the best at it or not have to be totally successful and also use them to help other people, you know, teaching a young person how to do something. Uh, but but it, it's not, you know, the, what, some of the things that I deal with in the book is that you need to move through the anxiety, but you also, it's important to also articulate and acknowledge the anxieties and what you're feeling. So if you are the type of person who likes to be really social, um, it's important to think about, well, what do I need to fill my days with? I need to make more lunch dates, or I need to volunteer, or what is it that I, I, I'm can I stop you? I want to stop you there because fill your days. I think that's something that kind of gets to me. I find it that I find kind of depressing. Like I'm going to fill my time until I die. Like I'm not really that right. doing what I'm doing is not that important. But I got to no. fill it up. Yeah. I start painting. I'm a terrible painter. Why am I doing this in the first place? I never did it before. <laughs> I don't want to do that. So right. Um, well, maybe maybe you wouldn't do painting. <laughs> But, you know, there there is that fear. A lot of people think, well, I'm going to be depressed. I'm going to watch, you know, reruns of uh, Judge Judy or Law and Order all day. Um, But the important thing is there there really isn't a void. Um, And and it's it's partly an attitude. Now, society might say, oh, you're old or you're discarded, but less now with the baby boomer generation. People tend to be healthier and they tend to be more active. Um, but So there's so many things that people can do. And you might need, I, I say in the book, a lot of people I interviewed just needed some time off after after they left their jobs, whether it was to take a trip or to 
you know, do something special or even just walk around the neighborhood and go into a local coffee shop. But there are always going to be ways that you're going to be needed. Uh, and and internally, if you're if you feel, you know, my life has endless opportunities. I don't have to go to my nine to five job every day or commute or do all the things that I was doing for 20, 30 years. Um, so a lot of it's an attitude and there's so many things that people can do. And I think the other thing, well, you mentioned it, baby boomers are kind of a special group. Um, and I think in the sense that they, they have been active, they are active. Women have mainly worked in the house, out of the house, combined both on all different kinds of things. Uh, I think one of the things that we as baby boomers and maybe are very much involved, we call about the, you know, the sandwich generation or whatever, very much involved in our children's lives too. Um, you see so many grandparents babysitting, talk about being needed for their grandchildren and being, right. yeah, not just once a week, but really taking care of them or, you know, helping to finance college educations or, I mean, you can go on and on with the family, uh, good stuff and the obligations. And um, I think that's, that's and because baby boomers live so long, um, they're they're vital when it comes to to doing those kinds of things. Well, definitely, and and one of the people in the book is one of my best friends, uh, Dixie, who her daughter um, had twins and moved, and her daughter moved to Oregon, and she was in California. <clears throat> Excuse me. And even though her husband really did not want to move and dug his heels in, she just said, "We're moving." You know, I want to be, I want to help my daughter. And it's very hard for a lot of people in the, I guess they'd be the millennial generation uh, in terms of, uh, you know, getting jobs and getting, being able to afford babysitters. So it's wonderful that Dixie moved up there. She had been a Montessori teacher. So, of course, she loved being around kids and even uses her lesson plans with the kids. So, uh, And she has a very fulfilling life that way. And she also is doing some other things. She's taking an Italian class and she's taking a poetry class, things that she really loves. So her retirement is filled with taking care of her grandkids um, now well, as long as three she's taking them. the Italian class uh, so that she can go to Italy, not just to take the class. <laughs> right, <laughs> She exactly. needs to follow through with that. But uh, given all this, and we've been kind of talking about the positives, but there's, you know, book, obviously, you're focusing, and particularly in your own case, with the anxiety and how you handle that. Because it's not just, okay, there's all these opportunities and you have to know, you know, what you can do and when you can do it. But be very I guess under you have to be very aware that that it can be it's very tough I get making the break changing um and so yeah. that it does cause some anxiety and you talk specifically about well the title of the book anxiety to zen um there are specific kinds of meditation exercises, things we can do to calm ourselves down, to help us make good choices, make good decisions when we're in the process of retiring. Yes, definitely and and you know, one of uh, years ago, I went to a hypnotist, and and by the way, there are articles. There was a New York Times article 
uh, a brain scan showing how the brain really does calm down during hypnosis. And it's not something like somebody's doing to you like in the old movies. So it's something that you're in control of. But she just gave me a three-minute self-hypnosis where I just imagined a beautiful place And then she said, see uh, a plane writing in the sky, the number 100, and then go down to maybe 90. And so you're really in a meditative state. And then give yourself a suggestion. So if you're somebody who's afraid that you won't make new friends, or you you can give yourself a suggestion, I'm surrounded by loving friends or loving family and friends when I retire. And you can just do that a couple of times a day, and it's amazing. And the hypnotist said, a lot of people said, I don't even have three minutes in a day, but <laughs> people can easily find three minutes, maybe twice a day. And uh, that's one thing that I did. And the other thing that's really easy is just to, to breathe into the count of four and out to the count of eight. Every time you make a transition, you know, from the house to the car or the house to the subway, and those are really simple. And I have other ideas in there of making a, a vision board and doing some visualizations. And they're all pretty, very simple and things what's that a, anybody what's can a vision, do. Elise, what's a vision board? What is that? A vision board is you would take, um, you know, usually uh, images from magazines. I mean, it's like being, in, in, this, in a way, it's like being in kindergarten again and getting out some uh, paste and, and a big, you know, a, a big piece of cardboard, and just cutting out images of what you see for your retirement life. And it could be, you know, beautiful places to take hikes. You could cut cut out, you know, pictures of national parks. It could be children. So you're imagining being spending more time with your grandchildren. Could be piano music if you decide you want to suddenly study a musical instrument, but you can put three or four things that really mean a lot to you and just stick it on your refrigerator. And it's amazing how, how just visually seeing something can, can help it to, to actually happen. How did it affect the relationship between you and your spouse? Uh, some people retire and they don't have a spouse, they don't have a partner, or sometimes, unfortunately, your partner dies and then you retire. Um, so, but you do. And so how does that change? Well, it was interesting. My, my husband retired when he was 66. He, which I mentioned before, he had really hit a wall and was having high, had high blood pressure. And meanwhile, I had been feeling burdened, not by my actual students, but by all the grading. And so when he retired, um, Honestly, it was hard for me to see him retired and then and I was still working, even though I'm six years younger than he is. And he, he joked. He said, I knew you would want to retire soon after. Uh, so that was, that was a little hard. And fortunately, he, he's really great in terms of, you know, he's not, he's not a high-maintenance kind of guy. I mean, he likes to cook, and he does things for himself, and so there weren't a lot of demands. And actually, he was tremendously helpful, you know, and always has been. But I do know that there are couples who have different visions of retirement, 
And especially sometimes if there's an age difference, that can make it even harder. You know, one person might want to move to Florida and, you know, play golf and go swimming, and another person might want to work part-time and stay in a consulting business and not leave an urban life. So it's it's important to talk about those things before yeah, because it really can create it can can create a rift I asked you that question because um, I I have friends and I have one friend whose husband is quite a bit older than she and that's exactly what happened I mean uh, they retired and she's a an athlete and he wants to sit in his not his rocker but one of the <laughs> sit and listen right. you know sip his wine and, and look at the scenery and it's a and it is you know, it's a whole new marital issue, which didn't exist yeah. before. And see, yeah. Yeah, and then the other thing that can happen is, um, you know, the money issue, too. Uh, you know, that was one of my big anxieties because I was getting out early and I knew I would have to do some work. But you're suddenly, sometimes you're, you suddenly have less money. That's not true for everybody. And then it's figuring out, okay, well, there are certain things I can't do as much of. You know, maybe maybe it's time for neighborhood potlucks, which is actually a great way of helping people, you know, be socially active with people in their neighborhood and also save money. But sometimes it, ta- you know, takes more thought or planning to, to do that, and that can create rifts too. So, yeah, so, and then that's when you need to do your meditation, the, the <laughs> breathing yeah, exactly. in six and, yeah, breathing out eight and keep doing that. So you'll end right, up in marriage right. counseling, yeah, when you retire. But let's talk about some of the different, because as we said in the beginning, there were like 17 different people that you followed or interviewed. Um, any specific, anything that you found out from that that we haven't talked about, like some other issues? Because I think... Uh, you know, because you really did cover a lot of issues in the book with all of these people. Um, Well, you know, definitely um, for some people as they got older, uh, and I've mentioned this briefly, that dealing with a difficult boss really became hard. And I found that to be a universal. And so they knew it was time to get out. And then the compassion fatigue. And then one person I interviewed who'd been an art history professor for years and really needs the adulation a lot. And, and what he had done is for the first time in his life, he got involved with an alumni organization at his uh, university, and he started getting involved with that before he retired. So he was suddenly um, in a position where he had students who really looked up to him and needed his wisdom, and it was all volunteer it all is volunteer, but it made the transition much easier for him that he could he could do that. Um, another person, Barry, who was a city planner, has started giving walks around San Francisco, and he loves history. So a lot of people were finding creative ways to continue to do what they loved and um, and and feel useful to other people. So as a writer, uh, it's you, it's you sort of have it. I, I would say you have it all in the sense that writing doesn't writing and being creative. You don't have to exert too much physical energy. You're not correcting papers anymore. But if you're writing, it involves your you know just thinking and and um, and 
creating and it seems to me it's something that one could do till the end. <laughs> oh, exactly. I know. When I was young, I thought, oh, I want to be an artist of some sort. And I, I literally could not paint at all. I mean, really couldn't paint. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe I could be a dancer because I, I love to dance. And, and it was funny. In the end, I thought, you know, I think I'll do writing. And I realized, yeah, it's something you can do, you know, as long, even if you can't see, there are all these programs for computers now. So it's something you can continue to do. And, you know, writing for, really for anybody can help you deal with feelings, anxieties. Keeping journals is, is a really wonderful thing. Yeah, you know, I think keeping journals, write it down. Um, I'm not sure what this is one suggestion that you had in the book, but whatever anxieties you have before you go to bed at night, what you need to accomplish, just write it down. Uh, it sort of gets rid of it and doesn't keep you up at night, whatever it is, whether it's uh, paying your bills or thinking about retirement, right. but, yeah, just writing it yeah. down. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left. Um, the book is uh, the book, as I said before, it's like a really good read. It's a, it, it's practical, but, and, uh, uh, I have to say I really enjoyed it. Poise for Retirement, which is moving from anxiety to zen. Uh, Louise, we can buy this online, bookstores everywhere, I assume? Yes, yes. It's it's out everywhere. And if we have a, a, a minute left, I, I might want to mention something about after retirement because the book does go for a few years after. Uh, well, you've got one minute to tell us about after retirement. Okay. Or you can let them, or don't tell us and let everybody buy the book and then they'll find out. But go on. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, but but I just actually just wanted to say that the book is also about three years after retirement. So if you've already retired, the book will also um, address a lot of things that happen after retirement. And so maybe we'll leave it as uh, mysterious like that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it as a teaser. So, and a website. Right. Give us a web- website we can go to. Yeah, my website is www.louisenayer, that's N as in Nancy, A-Y-E-R.com. Great. Um, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Fire can destroy your home, your business, and your life in seconds. On Speaking of Fire with co-hosts Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, we investigate fire, the origin and causes, and provide important information to prevent accidental fires and save your life, loved ones, and your property. We speak to experts about technology, investigative research, and insurance issues with regard to fire. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is cardiologist J.N. Cohen, MD, author of Cardiovascular Health, How Conventional Wisdom is Failing Us. Uh, Dr. Cohen is a professor of medicine at the University of Minnesota Medical School, and he challenges the conventional view that risk factors such as poor diet and lack of exercise are the biggest culprits leading to heart and blood vessel disease. Advocating for early intervention, he argues, an individual's personal and largely inherited cardiovascular health may be an overlooked cause for disease. He's written over 750 scientific papers and has been honored for his research accomplishments by the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, and Cornell University, and many more. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Cohen. Thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure to join you. Interesting topic. Uh, and also very unconventional. Let's talk about this because I'm one of those who ha- I ha- have a bad heart history on one side, so I stay thin and I eat well and I do all the stuff that you say doesn't matter. Or ha- I guess it does matter, but how does it matter? But you're saying that our medical, our predisposition to having heart disease and or strokes or, is um more important than whether or not we're running and jumping and exercising and eating well. Well, all those things do play a role, Catherine, and they're not of no value. But the problem is that you're born with a certain risk for developing cardiovascular disease because it's a biological process that affects the arteries and the heart. And that process uh, progresses through known mechanisms and if you've been born into with heredity and genomics that puts you at higher risk, that process is speeded up and leads to premature heart attacks and strokes. And yes, diet and exercise can modify that risk, but the modification is just modest. In fact, most of the studies that have been done in an effort to document that exercise and diet 
improve the the risk for heart disease uh, failed uh, and it's because the the effect is is quite modest it is there and of course it's emphasized by all the media and all the organizations because it's something one a person can do on his or her own but the problem is the disease is a biological process which is set into motion at the moment of birth and one needs to recognize if your process is accelerated then something needs to be done and diet and exercise won't do enough and therefore we have medications now which are very effective in inhibiting the biological process and that's what I'm promoting is the, is the idea that one should find out if you are in that category of having accelerated progression of disease, and then uh, your doctor should prescribe medications which will slow its progression. But doctor, how do you know? Let's say you just know anecdotal, you know, anecdotally or whatever. You that you know your father died of a heart attack at forty. Uh, your mother's eighty years old, so you have it on one side, but not the other. Right. Uh, or you know the history of your grandparents, maybe even your great grandparents. But how do you actually measure that risk? I mean, at age twenty-five, for instance, you don't just start taking drugs just having that kind of knowledge, do you? How no, do you, you, no, you yeah. don't, although there are advocates for early treatment if people are in a high-risk category. How do you determine the risk? Well, the standard way your doctor is told to do it is to calculate risk based upon risk factors, and that means he or she has measured your blood pressure and your cholesterol and uh, knows whether you're taking drugs for your blood pressure uh, and what your gender is and what your age is. These, these are issues that are easily calculated, uh, and the algorithms for making that calculation are online. So it's a simple process to determine on the basis of risk factors what your likelihood of having a heart attack is. The problem is that those, those uh, calculations give you a risk of a 10-year risk. And, of course, if you're 30 or 40 years old, it's not a 10-year risk you're concerned about. It's a lifetime risk. So what we have done in our center is to screen everyone with some tests to determine the health of their arteries and their heart. And that screening can start at age 20 or 40, depending upon the, the, the underlying problem that the patient or the individual has. And then we can determine if the disease is actually progressing. So would that and mean, for is, instance, we like get in a... Drugs. Okay, then I have two questions, but with the first one, so let's say you're 20 years old, you would do tests that maybe physicians traditionally don't do till you're 40 or 50, let's say. You're 20 years right. old, you have the history that I described, so you would do like a... Uh, an echocardiogram to see about the health of your arteries or you, th those kinds of things? Is that yeah, what you're talking well, about? Well, yeah. that's among the tests. Ultrasound to look at the arteries is among the tests. Uh, a photograph of the small arteries in the back of your eye is a test. Measurement of stiffness of the arteries, which we can calculate from recording a waveform from, from the artery at your wrist. Uh, that's among the tests. Uh, we do some cardiac tests, including ultrasound of the heart. And uh, all these 10 tests add up to what we call a disease score. And some individuals, even at the age of 20 or 25, 
exhibit progression of vascular abnormalities, which we know will progress if left untreated and will lead to heart attacks maybe at age 50, not at age 60 or 70. And we can change, we believe, the trajectory with uh, administration of some of the drugs like cholesterol-lowering drugs and blood pressure-lowering drugs, which favorably affect the progression of the process in the arteries and the heart. So the sooner we can find evidence for the disease progressing, the sooner we can start therapy, which we think will slow its progression and allow people to reach a ripe old age without a heart attack or a stroke. But is this standard operating procedure? No. Does insurance cover it? Uh, Insurance does cover it. Uh, It is not standard operating procedure, but insurance does cover the testing that we do, and that's one of the virtues of uh, coming in to get screened, because if you have a decent health care insurance, it will be covered. Now, what about the side effects of some of these medications? I know they say statins, for instance, are fine. You know, there are no side effects. I don't really believe that, but, you know, it seems to me that any medication that you take over a long period of time will have some side effects. Oh, you're Uh, absolutely right, Catherine, and that is the the downside of, of going on treatment is that a small fraction of people, it is a small fraction, can't tolerate the drugs that currently are effective, and we often have to adjust dosage and find the right medication, and sometimes we just can't do it, and unfortunately those people, given what we have available today, uh, can't get appropriate therapy. But I am confident we're going to develop much better therapy in the future if we just recognize the importance of this whole process of vascular progression of disease, if we appreciate that this is where we should be focusing our attention, the pharmaceutical industry will certainly find treatments which can be better tolerated. So uh, the, the, the problem with all drugs is that you're right. They, they have side effects in some people. So what you do is weigh the side effects against the benefits. Now it's a it's a choice. You have a choice of taking nothing and uh, allowing the disease to progress, progress, or taking something which will slow the progression of the disease, uh, even though there is a potential of a side effect. And, of course, if that side effect is un- unacceptable, then you don't take the pill. But it is inappropriate to say, as do many of my patients who come in, say, I don't want to take a statin drug. I've heard terrible things about it. I don't want to take it. And I have to convince them, well, let's give it a try. If you can't tolerate it, uh, we'll make other decisions. But if you can tolerate it, you are going to get the benefit of its effect to slow progression of disease. Well, what are the politics of all of this? Because there's always politics involved, right? Uh, In terms of the research being done, in terms of like the the response from your colleagues or from the medical community, because um, you, you really I have a, don't hear about this approach uh, or the media doesn't cover this approach. It's really as you as we said in the beginning of the interview, it has exercise and diet and and those kinds of things are the things that's you know we're told will keep us from having a heart attack. So can we talk about some of the the, the political 
I guess, ramifications from like proposing uh, this uh, um, way of treating heart disease? Um, yeah, well, yes, you've put your finger on one of the serious issues. Uh, the data to document that what we do will protect people's lives is not yet available. So you need 20 and 30 years of data in order to uh, satisfy the current criteria for demonstrating what you're doing works. I'm confident that that data will eventually demonstrate that it does work, but uh, until that day, the, the hesitant uh, conservative medical profession says, well, we can't do this because we've been taught to measure risk factors and treat the risk factors because we know from trials that treating the risk factor will prevent heart attacks and strokes, and that is true. But we discover that many people who, uh, with early disease, don't have the kind of risk factors that lead to treatment. Their blood pressure is not at a level which would normally be treated. Their cholesterol levels are not elevated. So the doctors are not treating those people, even though they have disease, which we can document in their arteries and heart, and it is progressing without interruption. So, yes, I'm confident that eventually the data will, will confirm what we're doing, but you're quite right. There is hesitancy in the interim for the, of the medical profession actually accepting this as standard practice. Yeah, well, you so say we're fighting. We're fighting uh, the, the battle in the political arena as well as in our medical care facility. So you also have to change the medical uh, in medical schools what medical students are being taught. Uh, I guess it starts there. Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you: What about? I mean, if you diet and exercise, I'm getting back to that now because it it just modifies. Um, whether or not you will develop heart, uh, cardiovascular disease. But if you are, let's say you are, you're obese and you're sitting on your couch drinking your martinis and watching TV, wouldn't see, um, it also can, you might get diabetes, for instance, or other kinds of diseases, which would also, wouldn't that help to kind of exacerbate the potential of having a cardiovascular incident? Well, what it is, if you, you have to come back to the biology of the arteries and the heart, and if the obesity and the diabetes appear to be accelerating the disease in the arteries, the treatment is the same. The drugs interfere with the progression, whether the progression is induced by your heredity or induced by your lifestyle. The problem is that changing lifestyle, which... We all uh, 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 emphasize, and that is the major emphasis in the media these days, is the importance of changing your diet and reducing your weight and making sure that you're exercising regularly. When that has been tried in, in prospective trials, that is, take a group of people who are overweight and have diabetes and uh, have a very high risk of heart attacks and strokes. <clears throat> and you aggressively intervene on half the population with efforts to get them exercising regularly and losing weight and going through dietary 
uh, consultation and maintaining oversight of what they're doing and eating. When you do that over 10, 15 years, which has been a study carried out by the NIH a couple of years ago, it, it could not document any reduction in the rate of heart attacks and strokes. So it's discouraging. It doesn't discourage us from emphasizing it and encouraging people to do it because we, we certainly believe that it must have some beneficial effect. And you can certainly demonstrate that it'll lower weight and lower blood pressure and lower cholesterol levels. But the fact of the matter is that modest reduction in those risk factors does not apparently be adequate to change the trajectory which you inherited. So that's where the drugs come in. The drugs work whether you're a a couch potato or whether you're a long-distance runner if, in fact, your arteries are unhealthy. I guess, well, you know, when you see these and you talk about long-distance runners, I think there have been a couple long-distance runners who we have to assume were in great shape who dropped dead, and you're always surprised, or I'm always surprised because they look like they're, you know, in the peak of health. But I guess if you went back to their genetic makeup, you would find they weren't. So what about the gene testing? Is that something we should all have done? Well, at the moment, the gene testing isn't adequate to distinguish whether you as an individual have disease or are going to get disease or not uh, because the the genetic uh, uh, complex is so complex because everyone has a unique genome. So someday we may reach the point where we can actually pull out the data that will tell you this individual has disease, this individual does not. We don't have that data now, so the best you can get is percent likelihoods. And uh, we believe instead of a percent likelihood, we'd like to measure the individual and find out if they have early abnormalities because you don't get heart attacks and strokes if your arteries are healthy. Uh, You don't get a heart attack if your arteries are healthy. Uh, And we can detect the abnormality in the arteries long before the event takes place. So uh, it it provides us an opportunity to individualize management. This is truly individualized care, and genes at the moment don't provide that degree of discrimination. Dr. Cohen, do you see in the future, and I guess we're talking about maybe not the near future, but if what you're saying is true, then sort of at the moment of birth, at some point, if you have the, 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 the uh, ability to test babies, for instance, you would know right from the beginning, wouldn't you? Or be able to determine whether or not they or, or had, you know, or had healthy arteries and, and, or is, do you think that would ever be possible? Well, I think, I think it would be, and of course that's the scary part of genomic research is that you can actually identify this in utero and make decisions about whether you want that baby or don't want that baby. And then there are now ways with the new CRISPR approach that you can actually alter the genes if you detect them, the genes that you don't like in the embryo. So we're in an era when we can actually model people, and it scares many uh, biologists and social scientists that we may have the capacity to do things which would destroy human life and model, model the, the body the way we aren't modeled. 
So these are all concerns. Uh, we're not doing genomic uh, studies in our particular patient population because we're focused on the biology of the process and measuring the, pro the progression over time, and that's what we do. So our patients come in, they get screened and evaluated for their health of their arteries and heart, and if they're healthy, they come back in five years and we check them again because if the disease is going to progress, we will be able to demonstrate the progression and intervene at a time when we think we can slow progression and prevent the heart attack and stroke from occurring. I, yeah, I'm thinking about it in terms of like Alzheimer's. You know, it used to be when somebody was diagnosed, it was sort of like you thought, well, they just got Alzheimer's, but now they're finding, of course, there's a progression to it. You may have started 20, what, 20, 25, 30 years ago um, until the actual symptoms were manifested, right? So it's That's kind of, right. And of course, uh, most, yeah. And many people think that Alzheimer's is largely a vascular disease relating to the small arteries supplying the brain. And if those small arteries are abnormal, the risk for Alzheimer's goes up. And if, the, if you can document the progression, you might be able to identify those individuals who are going to become uh, forgetful and lose their... their uh, uh, intellect as time goes on, and then we need therapy uh, which can slow that process. The attempt so far to find drugs which would slow the progression of Alzheimer's have not been very successful, but there is an area for future research for sure. What other kinds of, besides Alzheimer's and cardiovascular diseases, what, else, what other diseases um, is diabetes one of those? I'm trying to think of those that, you know, that... Um, well, diabetes is a disease which increases your risk for cardiovascular disease. What we don't know is whether it is the blood sugar, which is the, the, the documentation of diabetes, or whether it is a separate inheritance that, uh, that leads to progressive vascular disease. The attempts to control the vascular disease by controlling the blood sugar more aggressively have largely failed once again. So changing the, the metabolic problem, which is diabetes mellitus, doesn't seem to affect the risk for cardiovascular morbid events that we can protect with drug therapy. So once again, the link between diabetes and cardiovascular disease is definitely there statistically but the mechanism by which that uh, occurs is unknown. So what do we do as a layperson? And you're saying not a lot of uh, doctors or physicians or medical centers have embraced what we've been talking, what your, what your book is about, actually. So what do we do? Do we just come see you at the University of Minnesota or what if we want to get this kind of treatment? Well, that is one possibility, but fortunately we're, uh, we're introducing these programs around the country and perhaps in the next few years they will sprout up in other communities so that they will be accessible to people. In the meantime, uh, it, it is true that uh, uh, it isn't going to be easy, easy for people in other communities to get the testing, 
But these tests that we do are all available and could be uh, activated in other places very simply. The, the so, alternative approach, which has been very highly promoted by a group of epidemiologists, is what is called the polypill. The polypill is a, is a combination of low doses of statins and blood pressure-lowering medications and aspirin, which have all been shown to protect the arteries in the heart from disease progression. So uh, uh, the idea of the polypill is that everybody over the age of 45 or 50 just starts taking a polypill. And that, of course, is the non-discriminatory approach to reducing the incidence in the community of heart attacks and strokes by treating the whole population. It's not very satisfying for individual doctors to think that their patients are going to all be treated the same way when some are at risk and others are not. But that's the alternative that's been recommended by many experts. That's the future is give everybody a pill because the pills work. Go to your doctor, your internist, your cardiologist, and just pop a poly pill, and you well, said that, that was poly- the idea. And of course, the idea was the poly pill would be available over the counter, so that uh, individuals can just go into the drugstore and buy their poly pill. Uh, I find that a, a little frightening to think that people are all going to be taking these medications without supervision. So, I'm not a supporter of that idea, but it gives you some some uh, idea about uh, the extremes of, of the fact that drugs are effective in slowing progression to the point that this group of experts thinks everyone in the society should be taking a pill. Well, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, a very interesting conversation. Uh, I want to mention your book again, Cardiovascular Health. How conventional wisdom is failing us. So, if we you can buy the book, Amazon bookstores everywhere, I assume. And uh, Dr. Cohen, where can we go to find out more about what you're doing or to follow the the progression of what you're doing uh, online? Well, our our website for our program at the University of Minnesota is cardiovasculardiseaseprevention.org. So that, that website will provide you with a whole background of what we do and why we do it and how you can even make an appointment to come in and be checked out. Hopefully, okay. this will become more widely spread across the country and people can uh, go to their neighborhood uh, center and get this screening done because I believe that is the future of medical care is to prevent disease, not to treat the end stage of disease. Great. Great talking to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, um, Catherine. Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.